Ta. Woman Success China is powered by the Seneca Network. We are a bi-weekly podcast focused on capturing the lives of women in and from greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host, Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SubChina, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo, Jason McRonald for ending, and Jamie Louie for marketing. We have a really exciting opportunity that we want to share with you all. So for the first 50 listeners that leave a review on iTunes, they'll be entered for a drawing of a free one-year membership to the China Institute. So this one-year individual membership includes complimentary admission to select programs, including arts and culture, business, fashion, food, film, unlimited complimentary admission to China Institute's gallery, a 25% off discount on all gallery publications, a discount at Jiangnan Chinese Cuisine Restaurant with the valid membership card, a discount on admission for fee-based programs, and a discount on tuition for classes at the School of Chinese Studies. There is a lot included in that, and we will be giving that out to one of our listeners that leaves a review, and we'll be doing a drawing once we hit those 50 reviews. So you're hearing me right, get listening to the episode, click write a review in the Apple Podcasts app, and be sure to share your email in the review so we can track you down if you win the drawing. And on to regularly scheduled programming. This week we are joined by Peggy Leo, chairperson of Juice. Peggy is one of the leading catalysts of a green China and consults both companies and governments on sustainability and cross-cultural collaboration. Peggy outlines her crucial role in the China Dream Initiative and shares how she educated and promoted green and sustainable practices. You know, it stands out to me that Peggy has an effervescent demeanor and reels people in towards her vision. She takes a firm stance on issues, but does so with a finesse and grace. Let's listen to how she does this. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Ta for Ta. We are really excited today to have Peggy Leo on the show. She's the chairperson of Juice, and we're going to dive into a lot of topics, and I'm really excited about that. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to connect to your audience this way, and I love your title, Ta for Ta. It's great. I love it. So actually, during your 2012 TED Talk, you simplified the work that you do, uh, explaining it to your children as, mommy cleans the air. Right. (laughs) What? Does, what does Peggy do? And you know, give us a little bit of a highlights reel of your career. Yeah, and I actually showed a picture of a woman vacuum cleaning the sky because my kids at that time were at that age where I had to really simplify what it what it is that I actually do. And you know, because pollution is such a visceral way to describe the way that humans are ruining the environment in China, and it really is the catalyst for so much of the environmental policy that it's it's such a great um, way to just describe what it is that I do if I were to simplify it. I think that's probably still true. Generally speaking, I would say that I'm trying to help us improve uh, the world at societal scale. So I work on basically China-wide impact that usually has ripple effects around the world. And I right today, you know, I would describe what I do a little bit more differently than how we got started in 2007. So in 2007, we were called Joint U.S.-China Collaboration on Clean Energy because 
we got started out of literally the first public dialogues on clean energy between U.S. and China officials. And um, today, I would say we have successfully helped catalyze a lot of the greening of China from smart grid to cities to China Dream to lighting to clean energy. But, you know, we are now in a decade where we, we have to realize that we are facing mass adaptation. So mitigation we still need to do. So we need to reduce the amount of pollution um, and environmental damage. But we also have a lot of adaptation that's just going to occur now, no matter what. I liken our work to moving from a decade of mitigation to now a decade of adaptation. And what that means is that you you see this now, I think, in a lot of the, the online groups who basically, it, they're attracting a lot of people who are realizing that we need to adapt. And they're facing a lot of grief about this. They're like, well, what am I going to tell my mm. children? What if there's a possibility that humans are going to go extinct? Even if it's that, if it's 1% probability, then that's too much. And so a lot of these people are falling into deep states, states of grief and paralysis because of that. So I think that as an environmental leader anywhere, we need to think about how is it that we as human leaders help our fellow human beings deal with this grief, just like as if it was a person dying in their family. This is the entire planet and humanity that's essentially going through a dying process. So how do we help them in human ways versus scientific ways, mitigation solutions, clean energy solutions? So it's a, a different basket of solutions. How do we do that? And then how do we get people to start envisioning the world that can be, what I call a successor civilization? And how do we get people to be curious about what does that look like in detail? And how do we paint such a joyful picture that they're like, I can see myself in that world so that their subconscious mind will make it happen and we'll all create this together. So I basically define my job now as moving people through grief to envision a successor civilization. So having collective intent. You even publicly talk about how when you were a child, your life goal is to use technology to improve the living standards of everyone around the world. Do you think that you're delivering on that? And, you know, why is why have you held on so much to that that childhood dream? Like Well, so I read a lot of sci-fi. You know, I grew up I was the first child born in the US love that. an immigrant family. And I honestly was very lonely as somebody who was very Chinese and in very, you know, non-Chinese neighborhoods. And I sort of went into myself and I just read so much sci-fi. And Isaac Asimov, I love, 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 love him. And I'm so excited that the Foundation series is gonna be made into a TV show. Uh, and <laughs> by David Goyer, who's this amazing, mm. amazing guy, if you know Hollywood. Yeah. Um, and so I saw the possibility of, you know, using all those tools that were uh, written about in sci-fi, but in our real life. And so I just got really obsessed with, well, how can I help humanity um, essentially have better living standards, become better. And 
And then the other part of that is my dad is fairly famous in the computer industry. So he he's now older, but he's he's almost like a legend. He created SQL. He worked on some of the first like PCATRTs like at IBM. Wow. Um, he, I mean, he did a lot of stuff at IBM for 20 years and then went on to many other roles as well. But so I, as a child, had literally some of the first consumer PCs off the factory line from IBM. And those were my playthings. Those were my toys. I wasn't scared of technology. And so even in seventh grade, I knew, I was like, I want to go to MIT and build robots, right? Because that was a lot of what I was reading about. <laughs> and, and yeah. um, you know, I, I actually, my if you look at my career, I'm now 51, so I've done a lot of things. This is probably my third career. And, you know, I started off as an engineer in networking. So in ISD and modems, and then went into internet, I was actually known as an internet pioneer in Silicon Valley before I, you know, was known as an environmental person. And I created, I started one of the first e-commerce companies in Silicon Valley. Um, but internet obviously is a technology that has improved people's lives. I, I mean, uh, obviously there's other negative aspects to it as well, but generally speaking, I would say it's improved people's lives and, you know, clean energy I see in the same way. It's, it's a massive game changer. Um, and now food, you know, I, um, am working on food heroes, which is the leading or most comprehensive, actually really the only comprehensive curriculum that teaches kids and their families how to eat in a way that's good for them and good for the planet. And in a way, educational curriculum is a technology. And I am using that as a way to get people through food to learn to love themselves, right? Respect themselves by being aware of what they're putting into their bodies. Or Share food is sharing love with their family and friends. And, and then how you grow and dispose of food is actually a way to love the nature that sustains us. So through technology, we can actually get back in touch with our humanity if we look at it in the right way, if we're curated, right, guided in the right way. Um, technology of scaling at China scale that that is actually IP that China has and nobody else does, right? So think about the environmental and societal collapse that you're seeing all over the world today. What country has gone through so much change, but managed it fairly well? China, only China. Do you think at every step of your career you've been intentional about what you've wanted to do, or you know, some people say, okay, I fell into something. I have lived a really long life now. And one of the things that I tell the people that I, that I mentor or train the people that I manage is that my biggest lesson in life is to start living like you're just flowing down a stream and don't worry too much about how you're getting to the ocean. And when you are able to flow, then if there's a boulder in the middle of the stream, you're just going to go around it, right? Um, and, mm -hmm. you know, sometimes it's a little rough, right? Like if you've ever been whitewater rafting, sometimes you'll go down some rapids, but then sometimes it's sort of a nice trickle and you get to enjoy the view. So, so what I realize is that there is a difference between setting an intention, which is let me help improve humanity through technology. Um, or I would like to create a world where all humans are thriving equally alongside of all of nature, right? That's an intention. 
but how I get there, I do not plan anymore. So early in juice, I realized that something was happening, right? I didn't know what it was exactly at the time. And I started to, to throw out all business plans and annual reports. Again, this is somebody who worked at McKinsey, was an entrepreneur, then a VC. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm well-versed in business plans and annual reports and (laughs) planning and things like that. I was a product manager for very complex software products. So, but at some point I realized, wow, okay, what I need is just the intention and then surrender to the how. It creates a very important distinction between knowing where you'd like to go and also having a sense of peace about how you get there. I think that's that's a very interesting way of explaining it. Well, so I realized that, you know, I, again, Juice started in 2007. Today is 2019. So I've been doing this for 12 years. And in that 12 years, we have changed China in, you know, a handful of ways. One is we introduced smart grid and we revolutionized the entire grid. And now China is the leader in smart grid. Number two, we taught the first classes on eco cities in China and taught over mm-hmm. a thousand mayors and central government officials. And now China is the leader in essentially experimenting at city scale with solution sustainability solutions. So eco cities. We catalyzed the first clean energy summits, and now China is the leader in clean energy investments and deployment. We helped catalyze the change um, between incandescent lights and more energy efficient lights. And now China is the leader in LED lighting. And then we, in 2010, constructed a series of conversations on what the vision of China could be like if it was just by default sustainable versus, you know, describing it as an eco or green or sustainable type of future, just saying, well, this is a prosperous China. It's, you know, we're moving from survivability to livability to thriveability. And that by default is sustainable. And that became the China dream, the slogan for for China today. So in 10 years, we're able to make some changes that are pretty like large scale, right? No matter how you look at it. And each one of those it pretty much was on, you know, each one of them took about two and a half to three years to create a massive tipping point. And so I started to think about, well, how is it that we were able to do that? Because, you know, there's a lot of groups that I am in personally and of very smart people. So I don't think it's just about intelligence. I worked for a while on creating a framework called Stone Soup Collaborative Leadership. So trying to understand how to explain how to work collaboratively, not just within your organization, but across disciplines, across borders, because that's what Juice does. But I but I also felt that that wasn't enough. Okay, so you got to have smart people, you have to collaborate, and you know you have to do it cross-border and cross-discipline. But as I look into my energy practice, I understand a lot more now how your thoughts, your intention, then creates essentially, it magnetizes a vision, right? And it creates this energy, this magnetic energy that brings people who are attracted to that energy towards you, towards that vision. And the more people that are attracted, they then start to 
create a stronger magnetic force. The people who don't, you know, align with that energy, then they just fall off naturally. But the trick is how do you inject energy into the intention of this vision? So I started, I'm starting mm -hmm. to understand more how to explain that. But the, the process that we used in China Dream was essentially, you know, we worked with Sachi and Sachi S, Edelman, Ogilvy Green. These are some of the top um, ad agencies in PR uh, agencies of yeah. the world. And they helped me create this process, basically workshops, and then a process of how do you curate the information that we're getting about what should the China dream look like in visuals and phrases, and what was the nightmare that we wanted to run away from. And what I realized was you, you have to get a whole bunch of types of people, not just like a type, like the environmentalists or the academics or the government official. You have to have everybody and so we mixed it up, 25 people per workshop, um, you know, curated by these uh, advertising agencies and myself. And we put joy into the vision of China Dream. And so this vision today is around food and how people are choosing intentionally to eat food that's good for their body, but also good for their planet. I love that. And I, I really like that we're getting into the how you do things, because when you look and you read about Peggy online or you you listen to her in a talk, it's the accolades, what you've done has just been so incredible. And I, I think I even want to go all the way back to the second wave of your life, everything you've done with Juice. And, you know, how did you secure the role as chairperson of Juice? How did that come to being? And, you know, can you talk us through a little bit of that first forum on the future of energy in 2007 yeah. with MIT? Yeah. How did you go about that? Well, it, I mean, totally by accident, right? Like all things happen for a reason, right? So I yeah. went to MIT and at the time we had a new president of the Institute and she was the first female ever, Susan Hockfeld. And for me, you know, the time that I went to MIT as an electrical engineer, computer science major, there weren't a lot of women. So I was like, oh, how can I help her, right? I, I've helped all the other presidents since I was there, after I graduated with some campaign or another, how can I help her? And she mm -hmm. came to Shanghai and we hosted her, the little, you know, officers club hosted her. And she said, okay, I want to completely reorganize MIT around life sciences and clean energy, because I think that's where we can change the world. But the problem is, is that all the disciplines right now aren't talking to each other. So that was really visionary of her. So I said, okay, what can I do to help her. And I looked back, I had, you know, moved in 2004, so not that long before 2006 when she showed up. And one of my friends, Ira Aaron Priest, says that he's the first clean tech investor, you know, VC in the world, and he started these series of investor conferences, what he calls world-class clean tech investors conferences. So I said, "Okay, well, I know VCs in Silicon Valley and I was a VC at the time in Shanghai, so I, you know, I was throwing all these VC entrepreneur parties. So I, I knew a lot of people. I said, I'll just throw a party and call it the first world's class clean tech investors conference in China. <laughs> awesome. And then I'll be done with it. Well, yeah, okay. That, that's never what happens. So, you know, halfway through this, I mean, somebody's like, who's your government sponsor? And, you know, I'm this 
American who was traumatized in college um, helping campaign do this campaign for Senate in Delaware. With, I was just traumatized by the amount of racism in that <laughs> political campaign. And so I was like, oh, you know, I, I don't know anybody in the government. Uh, but luckily, my platinum sponsor, um, the CEO of IHS in China at the time, knew somebody and he brought him in and they said, yeah, we'll, we'll sponsor this. And it happened to be the NDRC's Investment Association Committee. And a lot of the people on there were ex-energy people, right? So they knew like the former, I mean, re- the biggest big shot in energy. And uh, of course, at the time it was fossil fuels. So I was like, awesome. I got it locked down. So I kept organizing. Then I kept pressing them, as one does, about who they could bring to speak from the Chinese government side. And as China goes, nobody commits to anything like that much in advance, right? They're just not used to that. Of course, I didn't know that. Right. And <laughs> but finally, they said, look, if you want the highest ranking person, the way that you should go about it is get an equally high ranking foreign person, either active or retired. It doesn't matter if he's, he or she is retired. I was like, okay, well, I don't know any, you know, government officials outside of China either. <laughs> so I, you know, I get on the phone and luckily my friend Gary Rochelle, who's sort of a big shot VC, he calls this ambassador for the US who I think might've called a second ambassador who then called somebody working for George Bush in the President's Council of Advisors on Science and Technology, and he ran the Energy Committee. So I get on the phone with Steve Papermaster, and half an hour later, he's like, sure, I'll come. I'm like, you you will? <laughs> awesome. That's crazy. And then he brings the U.S. Department of Energy. I mean, it's just, you know, it's just one of those things, right? Like, you get the first few people, and it's just sort of like, it's a snowball. And, and then... I, Steve Papermaster goes, again, it's sort of like halfway through, halfway through, right? It's like uh, radiation. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So halfway through, he's like, did you know that this is the first public dialogues between U.S. and Chinese government officials on clean energy? I'm like, you're kidding me. This is 2006 and almost 2007. How could that how could that possibly be, right? What I didn't realize was at the time, China had not even started on the path of clean energy. Like li- literally had not. And there were not a lot of public dialogues if at all, like zero, yeah. right? Everything is backdoor small delegations. And now at that time, it was still very rare for new policies to even be out in the open. Nowadays, of course, they they actively, China actively requests international advice on policies that they want to put in, right? But that wasn't the case back then. So I was like, gosh, that's amazing. And so I got China Daily to give us, I think, a two or four page spread for free, just covering the event to the MIT Forum on the Future of Energy in China. I got the head of energy at McKinsey to moderate this first panel. And um, I don't know. I mean, it was just all all these crazy things that I never thought I would be doing. But so this 400-person forum was amazing because it was multidisciplinary and nobody in China had ever been to such a cross-disciplinary type of event, right? We literally had, you know, the GM of BP gas in China to artists, calligraphers, to VCs, to journalists, and to building experts like Rob Watson, the the co-founder of the lead uh, building standards, green building standards, to 
I, uh, I, I mean, it was just like across the board. It wasn't my plan to spend 10 years doing this or now I guess 12 or more, but, but it just happened, right? And so you also hinted a bit earlier about educating Chinese government leaders. And I want to hear more about that. And what do you find was most rewarding from that experience? What was most frustrating from that experience? Education is oftentimes a a long haul process that requires a lot of different inputs and takes time. I just want to know more about that. Okay. First of all, one thing that people should know is, is that China and Singapore, but I mean, China, China's the only large country that I know of that has mandatory government training. So every year they have to take minimum of 12 days of training, no matter what level you are. And if you're getting a large promotion, you might have to do a month long training up to three months or a year. And there are eight official government academies that some of them are bigger than others, but they, they may have branches outside of their main headquarters. So for example, the China Academy of Governance, which is now merged with the party school that's based in Beijing, but it has branches all over and it does conduct classes all over. And what happens is they used to just um, send you this like red letter that said, you have to go and take this class, period. No, you know, no choice. Now you get to actually choose what class you want to take, which is nice. And um, you can choose the uh, academy, right? So what happened was the week after I started JUICE, I brought along Steve Papermaster to meet with the vice minister of the Ministry of Housing and Urban Rural Development, Chou Baoxing, who's now retired, but he's literally the first green visionary, green building visionary in China. And he's a prolific writer and he speaks English. And he sat down with us and he said, okay, you want to collaborate? Well, how about teaching our mayors how to build eco cities? Nobody had ever taught anything about green buildings, much less green city development at the National Academy for Mayors of China, which is his academy run under Mohur. You know, I started to teach about climate change and what is an eco city. And then, you know, over the years as China developed, I, I would work with the curriculum developers at these schools or academies to change up the content. Every year it was different. So it would be like clean energy for cities, you know, low carbon um, transportation, uh, climate mm-hmm. change plans for cities, eco heritage tourism, eco livable city design, and you know, things like that. So they would sort of like move up the Maslow's pir- pir- uh, pyramid, so to speak. Um, distributed heating and cooling, a municipal waste and water. Literally, I had to teach that, right? So, you know, there was a time when yeah. we weren't thinking about municipal waste and water. Of course, today, in, uh, in Shanghai, we're the first pilot city, major pilot city to do garbage sorting, at least, right? And that will then spread to 46 cities by the end of 2020 across China. So um, so anyway, you can imagine like every single time I did one of these, it, it sort of blew my mind that I was actually able to get 50 you know, mayors across China to sit and listen to me and the people that I brought in to speak. And this would be like up to 10 days that would we and we would take them on field trips. And I would try to be as experimental. And when I mean experimental, I mean, bringing in Western pedagogy techniques into China, 
you should see the first classes, the pictures of the first classrooms that we taught in were literally like these wooden desks that, you know, the chairs are stuck to the, t- to the table. And I mean, it, it, it was crazy. Right. And they would say, okay, you have to teach this way. You can't be too experimental because they're just not used to learning this way. So I would be told that each class had to be three hours long and one break, and they couldn't ask questions until the end of the lecture. And of course, you know, I kept pushing and pushing and pushing this and I would, you know, do dinners and I I would bring in, you know, top level executives and mayors from other cities and even Li Bingbing came, the actress. And, you know, I I was really pushing it. And then I was like, can I take them on field trips? And so, you know, I started doing that. And then I was like, can we do breakout sessions? (laughs) That's like really different crazy idea (laughs) crazy idea man um but i mean gosh it's it's really hard to understand how far we've gone if you if you haven't seen those early pictures right that i mean and just so if it feels like there's so many stories that come out of it and you know i think a lot of this work that you did culminated in this crucial role that you had in building the china dream Years later, do you feel that you've delivered on that promise? Well, you know, what's interesting is this guy um, who founded the Hillary Institute named for Edmund Hillary. So he comes from New Zealand and I'm taking him around. Um, so the, the Hillary Institute gives this prize out every year called the Hillary Laureate for who's doing the most work on climate change. And then every four years, they give out sort of a Nobel Prize thing called the Hillary Step. So if you know Edmund Hillary in the Himalayas, the, the Hillary Step is right before the summit, but it's like at a like a negative degree angle. So it's actually, you're, you're hanging upside down to climate. So it's pretty, pretty scary. Not that I know from experience, experience, but (laughs) and um, so I was, you know, really honored to be the second Hillary laureate and the first Hillary step. And now I'm on, I'm a governor, which is their name for board. So he was visiting me because he's writing this book about stories of the Hillary laureate's work. And I said, look, let me take you around the block that I live in. So I walked him around the block and it's totally under construction. So there's all this constructive um, construction billboards, right? I'm sure you can have this in your mind where they have like all the advertising on the side. And then I took him downstairs um, to the metro station. And of course there's tons of billboards there. So what he was amazed at was that the entire thing was all about essentially the China dream and living harmoniously and, you know, a clean, a clean water starts with you. And, um, you know, it has the little Chinese China dream logo, that's the chop mark, right? And the entire street and the entire subway and all, you know, all of the images were around like nature, um, you know, water, right? I, I, I have some of these, I took pictures of them and posted on Facebook because I was like, you know, th- this is when you know that the vision of the of prosperity is so entwined with sustainability that all the billboards naturally, you know, billboards, ads, the, the, the uh, sayings, right? Um, all embed sustainability versus saying, oh, and we need to do something sustainable. 
oh, and we have, and we should do this green thing, right? Mm. Just, it just is, right? Now, I will say though, um, and, and the China Dream itself was this this huge entertaining story of how that happened. But I I had this realization, I think a couple of days ago when I was talking about politics and the US-China trade war and Trump and the long-term effects in the Chinese psyche about the US. And I realized that the China dream and everything actually has taken a slight um, angle in its path because Trump has forced China into a reaction of needing to ensure its citizens that it can be strong enough to fight against US if necessary, hence the military parade, right? And so a lot of the China dream imagery, I think, is now angled much more towards the strong part, like strong if we need to part, versus the what it originally started off, off with, which is more the harmony with nature, right? A little bit of Tao. I, I was talking to, well, I won't say who I was talking to, but they, they made a very... I had this concern, which which she validated, which is not good, which is I said, do the masses in China, do you think they differentiate between Trump and his actions and his potential, you know, <laughs> just like, uh, I don't know, mental illness? Do they differentiate that? and what he does in his specific actions and the US as a whole, or do they just lump the two together? And I think you know the answer to this, right? If, if you've been here for so long, mm-hmm. these people believe, just see everything as a collective, right? Right or wrong, it is just much more collective. And the way that the Chinese government works is there's like one person who is responsible for China, if you want to talk about a particular thing, generally speaking, right? So it's very confusing when um, foreign organizations come to China and say, oh, well, we represent this country on this subject, but then somebody else and somebody else and somebody else also says, oh, I'm this organization, I'm that organization, whatever, and I you know, have influence over the country. It's, it's very confusing. So Trump, the individual and US as a country is conflated in Chinese minds, in, generally speaking, mm. masses. So this is a problem because if we can't differentiate the madness of this administration to generally speaking, the amazing things that US has done in the US people as a whole, that's going to have permanent consequences. And so I'm really, you know, I'm, I'm actually um, unhappy. I'll just simplify it. I'm unhappy <laughs> that the China dream has taken a, a, a detour, if that's the right word, just a slight tweak in the path to this 
China, China has to be strong, right? And, and it is a reaction. It's not they took the initiative and to say, oh, well, we have to present ourselves this aggressively. It, it was a reaction to how people were envisioning China, which is, of course, to begin with, the wrong vision and wrong understanding of China completely. But because they were envisioning China as an enemy, China has now become prepared to be the enemy. And so I'm very worried about that. And, and that does affect the China dream. Thank you for your honesty and candor on that. And I think that there's still a sense of optimism about where it can go is what I'm also getting from you. I am an optimist at the core of my being because I know that all humans can create the reality that we want. Not all humans understand that they have this power. They feel victimized and they feel like they're under the influence of other people, that they have no control. They cannot manifest the reality that they want, no matter what. They're the David to the Goliath. So how can I possibly make a difference? But I believe, and I know from my work, from people like Greta and many other young people who are making a difference, um, to poor people, to people in rural areas that we've never heard of, they're making huge difference in our collective reality, right? So the key, I think, to being an optimist is to remember that each human being is a creator, totally, right? And, and mothers know this, by the way. Like, I've had two children. I have created life. Like, you can't deny that. And... Second, you know, we have total control over the negativity that comes into our space. Total control. We do not have to be a victim, right? Of course, how you do that, that's a little bit more complicated, but there is, you just say, no, I will not allow it. I will only allow things that serve my highest good into my airspace, right? And then we have complete free will, right? Free will does take freedom of thought, which means you should try to avoid as much as possible social media or fake news or, I don't know, movies or video games that may try to, you know, numb you to, to your freedom of thought, right? <laughs> your good senses. But I am an optimist because I know we can, we can create the reality that we desire to all live in that we all desire to live in. We just need to get everybody to wake up to that fact and stop thinking of ourselves as victims, right? And we need to start envisioning that vision of the successor civilization that we all want to live in and then to be joyful and reveling in it. That's all. So let me actually try linking this. You know, when we talk about successor civilization and, and building a civilization for the future, I, I would be remiss not asking you about the work that you've recently been focused on in tackling children's health and nutrition. You know, why is in this, you know, third wave of your career, why is it so important for you to think about the children in China eating what's good for them and what's also good for the planet? Is it because you have kids of your own? Is it because the future is the children? You know, tell us a little bit more about that. Well, you know, remember, we are, Juice is an environmental organization. So we were worried about um, emissions initially, right? 
So it turns out that food systems is 30%, 30% of what's causing climate change for emissions. So what mm. tells me it's the number one sector. So 15% of that, meaning 15% of all greenhouse gas emissions is beef, the industry of, you know, feeding us beef. So one that points me to, if I'm going to do one acupressure point that I should be working in food systems. Two, um, people like David Nabarro, who has retired from being the UN special envoy to the sustainable development goals, but he has said since 2017, in fact, I just recorded him in New York saying it a little bit more detail, but he said, Food education is the only intervention, the only action that can help achieve all 17 global goals. So the food, the way that we grow and prepare and share and dispose of our food affects all of the 17 global goals, the sustainable development goals from gender equality right? The women smallhold farmers to who gets fed in a family if you only have a limited amount of food. Um, obviously, personal health, the oceans, climate change, sustainable consumption and production. I mean, all, all of this stuff, all of the goals is affected by food. So that to me says, okay, if I'm one person and I want to do one thing in my 24 hours a day to make the greatest change in the world, what would it be? Well, it would be that one intervention, that one acupressure point, and that's changing the way that we eat. And then I realized as I was creating this curriculum with food heroes characters and making the backstories and learning from Hollywood and the best Nickelodeon cartoon, you know, creators to um, soap opera script writers and, all, all these people about how to use storytelling. What, what I realized was, oh, okay, this uses the biggest lesson that I took away from the China dream, which is to change behavior, to change social norms, you have to speak to people's hearts and not to people's heads. So you cannot keep throwing statistic after statistic to them. That doesn't work. And you have to use emotional words to describe that. And so the storytelling, right, really plays into that. And then, and then I realized that, oh, actually what we're teaching kids and their family members to do is that food is the most intimate act that you do with your body. It's actually not sex. And so think about how much attention do you put in, uh, on what you put in your mouth? Very little, right? So if you think about it, what you feed yourself is a reflection of self-love. One of the biggest problems that we have in China, and I'm sure around the world, is, is that a lot of the children don't eat with their parents. And maybe they're eating a TV or an iPad or at a different time of the day, or they're being force-fed by their IE separately, their nanny. So... It actually, the way we've lost the family meal time. And I think most people realize like that's really important. So the way that you share food is sharing love and making food for people is actually a form of making love. 
And then I realized, okay, the way that we grow and dispose of food is actually a way to show how much we respect and love the nature that sustains us, right? So we have this class of worm composting, which I love because people are usually shocked and don't like to touch the worms at first. Um, the, actually, the adults don't like it, but the kids love it. We did. We were asked to do this special VIP event at the WeWork headquarters in Shanghai with a Shanghai Media Group filming this. And I literally had WeWork have their cleaning staff take the trash bags from the trash in the coffee station. And I had three volunteers, of course, I gave them gloves, go and pick the trash one by one out of these like supposedly sorted, you know, trash bags because we're, we're celebrating the recycle, uh, the, the garbage sorting, right? And half of that stuff could go into the worm bin. So I said, look, all everything that's in um, part of nature, every part of nature can be reborn, right? So that, of course, is a very Chinese concept. So maybe Americans might have a harder time with that. But, you know, Chinese people, if you say, oh, it can be reborn, that's pretty, okay, sure. <laughs> you know, that's a good thing. And yes, it, it, people are reborn. Um, getting closer and more aware of food and being more sensitive to what happens to it after you're done eating um, and how you're preparing it or how, how you're choosing it or growing it, that actually is a way for us to connect again with nature. Now, for me and my belief system, I, I believe that all of nature is equally alive down to the elemental minerals, the, the cockroaches, the squirrels certainly the worms, right? The birds, the chimpanzees, of course, the dolphins, the whales, and humans. But humans are no more alive than any of that. Oh, sorry, the trees and the plants, right? So for me, it's really important to have children get back in touch with the true energy source of them, of creation, which is nature, right? And so I was, when I was filming yesterday at the bottom of the Shanghai, I did this short video clip on my Facebook blog. And I said, you know, it's interesting. I, I talk about this a lot in my sustainable urbanization classes, but these things are essentially phallic symbols. Rob Watson, the co-founder of LEED says, these buildings are essentially phallic symbols. They're man's way of reaching their hand into sky, into the sky to touch the hand of God. Right? But ironically, we're so separated now when we live in these cities from nature, which is God, right? And so we need to somehow, like for me, the true definition of an eco city is where you can equally have the senses, five senses tickled by all forms of nature as it's integrated across the city landscape. So that was my thought for, for yesterday. So for me, teaching children how to eat in a way that's good for them and good for the planet is good for the physical body, their emotional body, of course, right? Too much sugar, you know what happens. Their mental body, <laughs> their mental body, of course, Chinese parents love that because they all want them to pass the gaokao, the college entrance exam. And actually their spiritual or energetic body, right? Are they eating living foods? Or are they eating dead foods wrapped like mummies in plastic? 
and it's good for our environmental body, right? So food is the key to everything in my mind. Now, why we're targeting children with stories and games and play-based curriculum is because when you're about five, your brain can start to comprehend some of the things that we're telling you. But if you pass about nine, your dietary habits have really set and they're really formed mostly by social norms and not by what your teachers or parents are giving you so that you can be more curious about what's put in front of you, right? Like the flashcards of beautiful rainbow plant-based foods, right? They're, they're less curious about that and they just follow along with social norms of their peers. So five to nine for me is a great age group to play games with and tell stories to. And then they take home parents, which have parents' guides in the back that then teach their parents why this will help with children's behavior and the, you know how they can support their child at home. And of course, their parents are open to behavior changes at this time because they're so committed to their kids' you know, physical health, their emotional health, and their mental health. So, so that's why wow. I'm focused on food. That's why David Nabarro says food education is the single thing that everybody should be working on, right? If you're, if you care about the sustainable development goals. And I think, you know, every single person should be re-looking re at food from these different layers, right? Next time you pick up a bite of food, just like be a little bit more aware. Wow. And that, I mean, I'm excited to continue to see the work that you do with this. I've also just been so impressed with the, the compilation and the collection of stories that you have. When you really said that there were three waves of your career, it's incredible the depth that you've gotten to. Um, and I feel like, you know, we've only scratched the surface in this interview, but it has been such a pleasure, Peggy. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for today. Make sure to write a review on Apple Podcasts and leave your email in the comment. We're going to be giving away a free one-year membership to the China Institute that you don't want to miss out on. We're also getting more active on Twitter, as you've hopefully seen, providing content that really elevates and supports what you're listening to here. Our Twitter handle is at ta for ta And of course, we still regularly check our email at ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Ta for Ta, Women, Success, China is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks again to Kaiser Kuo for co-producing, Jason McRonald for editing, and Jamie Lue for marketing. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.